Take this time to salute and congratulate all you gangbangers for the slaughter of thousands of black people. You're doing a marvelous job. Black man, where are you today? You continue to run away, run away to crime, theft, drugs, drug selling, violence, and the mental and physical rape of ourselves. You are killing what could be future black doctors, lawyers, and businessmen that we won't have to compete with. The excellent thing is, you're killing the youth. I too experienced the pain and the hurt. It seems like it would never go away. But understand, that was yesterday. With your help and commitment, we won't have to worry about you niggas and generations to come. Come forth, black man. Come forth, black man. Come forth. On this episode man. of Playtime, author, poet, filmmaker, and Chicago's next possible poet laureate, an important conversation with Kowazi Garou. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. The proverbial throwback Even though the industry done let me cut I cut some no slack Questioning where I work at as if I was Tommy Punk I'm a pro-black And to some this might be odd But according to the Bible I be God There's a struggle, is an eternal, internal jihad If it was external, they bring the marines They got machines to blow human beings to smithereens That's when so-called revolutionaries get loose like chitterlings Or apron strings around teenage mothers that don't quite fit If I can't write the truth then I won't write shit Y'all gonna learn to get off this black and white shit Come to my show and see me flow, it's blood red Cause I'm so cold, I turn the mic blue The only poet that get the mics the same, they that mic do Of course you don't like me, cause I'm nothing like you I'm a revolutionary slash and I warrior Plus I brought something for you We began with revolutionary words by Malik Youssef K.G. Hero wants to be Chicago's next poet laureate And he has a message as part of that honor First a bit of background is necessary. In 1992, there were 940 homicides in Chicago, 34 under the all-time high of 974 in 1974. Despite the media-driven politics and a spike in 2016 of 765 deaths, the murder rate within the city of Chicago has trended steadily downward. That level dropped to an all-time low in 2020 to just 353, according to CPD statistics. In 2022, it rose again to 630, a terrible number, but still a historic trend downward from the 1992 numbers. That despite an unprecedented proliferation and availability of guns and a real homicide clearance and conviction rate of just 25%. 
And April 4, 2022, Sun-Times investigation found that the CPD had inflated clearance rates for murder by double the actual rate. A systemic and dysfunctional disconnect between City Hall and the police department has fed that shameful statistic. The cold calculation of these numbers only tell part of the story. First is the impact of community groups and organizations like Ceasefire and my very good friend, Theo Hardiman, of brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, church groups, and families to intervene and mitigate violence. On May 19, 2022, the Chicago Sun-Times reported in North Lawndale, where UCAN is one of three overlapping groups working to tamp down violence, shootings have fallen by more than 50% and murders by nearly two-thirds. It's guns. There are almost 400 million guns in America, a market pushed by gun pornographers and the gun industry through political propaganda to promote a violent and deadly product with no real function in normal civilized society. It is simply profit paid in blood. The true reality behind those numbers are the names heartbreak and tears. Within those names, we begin to shed assumptions of race and lifestyle and untangle the processes endemic to a bulldozer-style economic system and a media and political arm, which should focus on addressing process over assumption, disease over symptom. Back to that terrible number in 1992. One of those names was a Southside Black 17-year-old named James Smiley Ford. Assumptions. I said Black, Southside, and 17-year-old with purpose, because it is assumptions based upon those descriptors, which we all use all too often to dismiss the issue and parcel it away as just another gang killing. Where are the voices we constantly hear a co-opted media ask? Where are the voices in the Black community? They ask that question as an accusation and then turn off the cameras, silencing a million voices and silencing their reality to an underinformed population. Assumptions, they are built as well as held. The website is kowazigaro.com, and you can find him on Facebook at Kowazigaro, My Brother's Keeper. His book of poetry is titled Innocent Rage. First of all, welcome to the show, man. Peace, nice. Joe. Thanks for having me. So I'll go with WC since that's what you use. WC is that okay? Perfect, perfect. Did did you were you able to hear all of the introduction? Yes, I yes I was, Bill. Thank you so kindly. WC, what, thank you um, so kindly. Did did I did I leave anything off the table or did I miss anything? Uh, I mean, the proper pronunciation of my name is Kwesi Gaharo. Kwesi Gaharo. Got it. Got yes. it. We, but we won't make that mistake again. But not, not a problem, but you get all of the important uh, points. Excellent, excellent. Um, and so I, I want to get into your, your brother here, uh, the story about your brother and how and how it's led you to this moment um, in just a moment. Um, first, I, I would be remiss with, um, with, with, with my indictment of the media in talking about Tyree Nichols and, and Memphis. And, and I'll preface it by saying this. The media in this country was salivating 
over the prospect of violence. And when no violence erupted after the release of the video of the beating death of Tyree Nichols, they just dropped the story. Uh, we live in a time and a place where uh, this public lynching, the sensation of, of, uh, of media trying to get views, so they made this almost a, a, as an entertainment, like it was um, like a streaming platform was about to release a movie, you know? Yeah. So, but whether you're black or white, if you are trained in a racist system, you're going to have those ill wills that that system teaches you. And the police department offices, it was, as you know, was created back in the day, overseas offices to find runaway slaves. And this system still to this day is, it's a racist system. So if you're a black person or Latino person or an Asian person that is a police officer, though you may have a great heart, if you are taught the ways to train and to conduct yourself as a police officer, you're going to unfortunately have some racist or ill will tendencies. And this particular situation with Tyree, though five black men did this, they were trained in a racist system. The system of the police department in America is racist, period. And long as we don't have community policing in a way in which it's a social dynamic, that people who are in the community become police officers that have a true concern about serving and protecting. Unfortunately, America is going to continue to face this from its police department. I agree, and and thank you for anticipating my my next question about what would you say to uh, to people who who would point out that the perpetrators uh, of the beating of of Tyree Nichols was uh, were, were black. And you, yeah. you, you anticipated that perfectly, man. I mean, NWA said the best in one of their songs. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help your black ass? You goddamn right. But won't you tell everybody what the fuck you gotta say? Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it bad because I'm brown. And not the other color, so police think they have the authority to kill a minority. Fuck that shit because I ain't the one for a punk motherfucker with a badge selling narcotics. My cops showing out for a white cop. And if you listen to the tape and listen to the audio, one of the white cops says, I hope they beat him to death. You know, so again, racist system, racist organization, pretty much they are the new KKK. That's reflected and reaffirmed by, by the media, right? Very much so. And again, media right now is about entertainment. It's about how many views can we get? How many eyeballs can we have? How many viewership? Because they're trying to sell ad dollars yeah. to those specific, you know, brands. Well, so I, I would, I would have, I, I would have one quick correction to that. That Go ahead. talk radio, which is, which is a, a, a driver of a lot of, a lot of this, the, these social attitudes, particularly about race. And, and because it is so overwhelmingly dominated by by the right, and the right is 
overwhelmingly dominated by uh, by white perspectives that they have historically not cared about ratings but about saturation of of the message because we still fall in this country between two forms of information uh, one is if you're if you're older than 40 generally you you prescribe or or you adhere or you listen to or read traditional media uh, such as newspapers and uh, and and uh, AM radio and talk radio and and all that. If you're a younger person, you uh, and, and that's why the right is so aggressively moving into uh, the internet and electronic media because that's that's where the next generations come from and they need to build that base. I agree. I, I was just particularly talking about the visual media, mainstream yep. media. Yep. Um, in that space because they have the video on radio you can't see the video so they're not going to um they're not work they're going to talk about the story of course because it's a it's a, it's a mainstream topic of, of yeah. Issue, uh, yeah. social issue but tv mainstream tv they released it and came out with the, the footage like they were releasing you know a, a premiere for a tv show or a film Mm -hmm. Purely, you know, entertainment and the sensitization of it in order to have viewers watch their particular uh, network. So let's let's get on to you, brother, because that's what we were here for, right? Yes, um, yes. But again, Tyree's death uh, is a, a truly an unfortunate situation. He wasn't yep. a threat to anyone. He was a skateboarder. The only thing that he wanted to do was skate, skateboard, you know, yeah. and, and be the person that he was and not be, I mean, I would have ran too, you know, you, you got five people chasing you down, you know, you haven't done anything wrong. It can be a very terrifying, you know, I, I look at it from, from a white perspective. Well, if the, if the police officers ask you to do something, well, then you comply. But all too often we've seen, we've seen that go uh, entirely of the, the other way to, to black people where, or people of color that the, the escalation tactics of police are, are utilized right off the bat and and they they escalate it beyond the point of so so it, it almost it almost demands a fight or flight reaction instinctively from a person and particularly a person of color am i am i kind of on the right track there yes i mean you think about it you, when you see the footage which is really painful to look at i, I didn't want to watch it all and be like yo because Pretty much what media wants us to do is to become numb to these public lynchings. But these five officers, literally, I mean, they could have stopped him, period. They stood him up, punching him left to right, with yeah. the, and then using the, the, their baton. Went so out for minutes. Really, yes, yes. So just an unfortunate situation. Uh, but again, Black, white, Latino, go training in a racist system. You're going to take on some of those ill wills and your behavior and your conduct um, as a professional in that space, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I thought that was I thought that was important to uh, to at least at least mention. Your critically acclaimed film is titled Kowesi. Eric, what's up, bruh? I'm writing you this letter because I would like to meet and forgive you for the murder of my younger brother James Lamont Ford. During our meeting, if you choose, you do not have to say or admit anything. I would just like the opportunity to express my personal and family pain and hurt, and in turn, make peace with you. 
sincerely. I wanted to come back, I, I want to come back to that film in, in a few moments because you said something very profound uh, and very close to what I've been saying for for a very long time. Um, I, I, I've said it in discussions with uh, with Theo Hardiman and uh, and and other uh, uh, other activists um, who who are leading the way uh, in in the Hispanic and Black communities uh, anti violence. But we'll come back to that in a minute. I wanted to start here. Okay, no problem. Uh, and and I know it's terribly painful, but I feel that it's. Uh, it, it's at the it's at the core of of everything that we're going to talk about the circumstances around your brother's murder. Yes, painful, but um, as you know, I've turned that pain into poetry. So yes, you have. Uh, Arts lead the I, way, brother. <laughs> so yeah, so um, and it's still though thirty one years ago uh, this month, two weeks ago, yeah. my brother was, was killed was murdered. Wow. So. It is a painful and still traumatic piece, but I'm using that pain for positivity and to empower and inspire others. It was an unusually warm winter today in Chicago on January 11, 1992, which was a Saturday. Lamont was at the mall doing what teenagers do, buying some clothes, buying some sneakers, and probably talking to, you know, some females. And by the way, not, not, a, not a gang member, um, so I, I wanted to make that clear because I, I didn't make no, it. I was going to get into that. Yes, okay. no, I was going to get into that as I shared okay. the story. Yeah. So um, at that particular time, he was at the mall. Lamont friends back on the block on 136th and low in Riverdale uh, saw these two guys walking up and down the street like, yo, ain't nothing but GDs around here. So Lamont's friends didn't get involved with that conversation. They kept minding their own business. Lamont comes home later on eats dinner with my mom, asked if he can go out to meet with his friends to watch, you know, music videos, play video games, watch the movie, what have you. So about 9.30, 10 o'clock, everybody had to check in. Lamont didn't have to check in because he had just left my mom, so she knew where he would be. Yeah. And so as, as this other friends, about eight to 10 of his friends, Checking in with their parents to let them know they was going to go over to someone else's house, watch movies, play video games, music videos, what have you. So as Lamont and Kim are waiting outside, about six doors down from my house, by a tree on 136 in Low Street in Riverdale, these two guys come back on the block. Eric Taylor and Jonathan Jackson. Jonathan pulled the car in front of Lamont and Kim. Eric got out of the car approached Kim. Kim thought Eric was going to ask for directions. She stepped back. He approached her again. She stepped back. And at that point, Eric turned or pulled out the gun on Kim. Lamont stepped in was like, yo, what's going on? So Eric turns his attention from Kim to Lamont, forced Lamont in the cop, 12 gates to his back. Jonathan drove off. Kim ran home to my mom's house, banging on the door. Diane, 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 somebody kidnapped Lamont. Doing that trip, it was a three-mile trip from where they took him and shot him. Doing the three miles, Eric and Jonathan made Lamont strip of all of his clothing, even his underwear. When they got to Dixmore, south suburb of Chicago, 142nd on Lincoln Street, it was a vacant lot. Jonathan stopped the car. Eric told Lamont to get out of the car, walk him to the vacant lot, place him on his knees. His face. 
the right side, the right of, side of his head had a hole in it the size of a grapefruit. His face. The ear on the right side of his head was barely attached. His face. His eyes were still open. They had bulged out of his head and his head became disfigured from the gunshot blast. His face. Only if you could see his face. His face. His face. His face. His face. Blood had ran from his nose to his mouth, while blood on the more table set in puddles from the head room. His face. Lamont didn't even look like him. His face. His face. Only if you could see his face. His face. And his face is in my new book, Innocent Rage. That's Lamont, two hours after he was shot and killed execution style by Eric Taylor. This photo image is in my debut book, Innocent Rage. Yeah. Um, as as Emmett, as Emmett Till's mom wanted the world to see yeah. what, what those white men did to her son with the open casket and sharing the photo on um, with Ebony Magazine, um, I said I wanted the world to see what these two men, two black men, did to my younger brother for pretty much nothing. They were up to no good. During the month of January of 1992, they killed two people. Well, Lamont been the first person that they killed, attempted to kill a third person, but he survived the gunshot wound. And it was his testimony, the convicting testimonies, that Eric and Jonathan were the people who shot and killed Lamont. This really upended your life. You were a, you were a business marketing major in, uh, in college. Yes. No, I was preparing to graduate from the HBCU Central State University in Wilberforce, Ohio. Uh -huh. Lamont was preparing to graduate from Thornton Township High School in Harvey. He was graduating June 7th. I was graduating June 14th. My mother was really looking forward to June of 1992 because her two boys were both graduated. And I was actually preparing Lamont to matriculate at Central State because I was teaching them how to drive my five-speed car. I had a two-seater <laughs> Honda. And I was teaching them how to drive the car because I was going to give him this the car as a graduation gift wow. and him going to Central State because... But nonetheless, so yeah, we were preparing for that. My mom was really looking forward to June of 92. Um, Thornton Township did bless my family. They did give him um, his uh, degree, uh, his high school diploma post-homously. His friends called him Smiley. He worked in the uh, cafeteria at school. The staff called him Smiley because he was always smiling. He always was upbeat and cheerful and, and just good to the people um, around him. Well, he, he, stepped in, he stepped in to help that girl. Um, yeah, I mean, who who does that at 17 years of age, you know, with yeah, the gun yeah. um, pointed at them or a friend, you know, so even him and his traffic act, it empowered me. Can I sacrifice my own to help someone else out? In essence, my mom taught us to be this way growing up as children. You know, yeah. don't be afraid to sacrifice your own to help someone else out. Someone is in need of you have it, help them out. And so, yeah, but I went through stages of, of hate, anger, rage. Suicidal um, thoughts. Suicidal thoughts. Because yeah. all the pain and the hurt that was caused to me and my family was caused by other Black people. I hated my mom for teaching us to be goody two-shoes. I hated Black women because my brother died for a Black woman. I hated Black men because those two men, Eric and Jonathan, killed my brother. And the person I hated the most was myself. I turned to drugs, alcohol. Sometimes I feel like I'm one shot away. One shot away? from the beginning of a new day, a day that would be forever and I would never have to worry about being one shot away. 
because my younger brother Lamont was one shot away from being right here today. But I know if I take this one shot away, I will be away lasting. You will be passing me by. Like, why? Why? Quasi, you had so many skills and you was using them to help build in the community, but there's no unity amongst my people. I ain't gonna make this yeah. no secondhand sequel because I know I'm just one shot away and I know I'm just one shot away. I'm exposed my shots and I always get what I've got. So I know you miss 100% of the shots you never take, but this is for sure. This is for sure I will the will to make. But I know if I take this one shot away from me, this was my last shot away from me because my will does will to see the will that I will to be. And though at times, though at times, WC, I get disconcerted and weaken. Being of this physical being makes me weaken. But I ain't gonna stop seeking the good and peace within this one shot away from me. So God, God, please, please stop me because you understand the power of the mind and mind can harm me line at the end. But WC, I ain't trying to end this. I'm gonna have to miss this. I'm going to be in your life like the sun. So close, just so far away. Because I know if I take this one shot away, it will be my last shot away. But I know I'm one shot away. And that's that piece, one shot away, in which I thought about killing myself and dealing with Lamont's death. But through writing poetry, it empowered me not to commit suicide in real life, but to commit that act or pen where I could share that pain that hurt and still be a light in darkness for someone else and dealing with pain, hurt, or disappointment. I was writing everywhere. It was like my brother's spirit was living through me. At the clubs, at the bus stop, on the L, on the toilet. I really was. I was writing on the toilet. I was hooked. Soul searching. I sit in the sun. Life one has me soul searching. So I away. sit in the sun to soak away. Sometimes, sometimes has me like searching. So, so I sit in the sun. Yes, America. I sit in the sun to America. Don't scatter her. People thought I was crazy. That's a that's a powerful thought. It's a powerful poem. You began writing to the two murderers. First of all, why was that important to you? And second of all, what did you learn from looking them in, in the eye? Well, um, I began writing them um, when the, they were convicted of killing Lamont. When they were convicted, the day that they were convicted, um, I left the courtroom. Though we got justice with their conviction, I still didn't have energy justice. I still didn't have the, the personal justice, the peace. So I went to my brother's gravesite. One of the very few times I went to his site, but I physically wanted to be next to him. I wanted to, to just ask him like, yo, what am I to do? How am I to use this pain and hurt? to heal. And so my spirit said, forgive Eric and Jonathan. So I said a prayer at his gravesite, and I continued to write. And so I wrote them in prison. And here's one of the letters that I wrote. Eric, what's up, bro? I am writing to you this letter because I would like to meet and forgive you for the murder of my younger brother, James Lamont Ford. Do not meet, and if you choose, you do not have to say or admit anything. I would just like the opportunity to express my personal and family pain and hurt, and in turn, make peace with you. I pray, I pray for you and your family that you are doing well under your conditions. I also pray and hope you accept my invitation. I want to do this for myself so I can end the chapter on Lamont's death and move on progressively with my life. Also, for my continued personal healing and to let you know it's okay, that I understand your pain and struggle as a black man in America. Please give us the opportunity to meet 
and perhaps we may be able to develop a relationship where I can help you during your tumultuous time. Sincerely, Crazy P.S. If you accept this invitation, feel free to call me Collect At. And I gave them both the number that they can call me Collect At. Jonathan didn't give me permission to go meet him, okay. but I forgave him over that phone conversation. And I was living with my mother at the time. Eric called Collect and WC. Who do you think answered the phone? My mom answered the phone. Really? Of the man who shot and killed him. Yeah, and that wasn't a pleasant pleasant moment between my mother at that time. And and she asked me, how can you give this guy the number? He kills your brother, what, what are you doing? And I was just like, mom, I don't wanna live with this pain and hurt. I don't want to have this be a double victim of it. That was one of the letters that I wrote Eric and Jonathan to meet them as I, as I, as I was sharing. Jonathan didn't give me permission to meet him, though I forgiven him on the phone. Eric called, he gave me permission to go visit him at the Cook County Jail. I went to visit him. We said, I said peace. I told him he didn't have to admit to me that he did it. That was his own internal struggle of him dealing with what happened. You know, um, based on the evidence, based on him identifying them, that because outside of uh, uh, Kim and them, they were the last one to see Lamont alive. She saw them take Lamont. And so for me, that was enough evidence. And he didn't have to admit to me whether he did it or not. I was just like, look, all the evidence points to you guys. So yep. uh, we spoke. Uh, I visited them several times. They were wearing your brother's clothes. Yeah. Yeah. They had on his pants and gym shoes like yeah. Jonathan did. They were caught two weeks later. And Jonathan had Lamont's uh, stonewashed black jeans and his brand new boy Felot gym shoes. Yeah. And so that was enough evidence for me uh, right, right there that I didn't have to, you know, like, you got to admit, brother, you did this. Now, that wasn't mm -hmm. the purpose of my meeting. Gun violence, unfortunately, has played, plagued my, my, my family. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. I've had a nephew that was shot a couple of times to survive. So I wrote them because I didn't want to deal with the pain and hurt and I wanted to heal my heart and I knew that starts with me started with me reaching out to start my healing process hearing about your story I I kept thinking of of this in 1994 uh, I was on a frontline mountain over Sarajevo and I or I could feel mm -hmm. and hear artillery up the mountain and sniper fire below uh, the the clearing where we were there were lines of soldiers, Bosnian soldiers, who were marching up from the valley to to the front lines higher on the mountain. And I described it in, in my memoir as they were counting their heartbeats backwards towards that ultimate, uh, that ultimate moment. I, I found that very same sense in, in your story where I'm, I'm almost following you footstep by footstep to, to the prison and, and how that first meeting would have been that ultimate moment, man. It was like winning the championship of life for me yeah. um, because I didn't allow such pain or hurt to, to, to consume me and me become revengeful or because, you know, when you're in court with, with a family for three and a half years, you learn everything about their family, who's doing what, when they're doing it, who's dropping the kids off, what time they're being dropped off. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to seek revenge and, and continue to perpetuate this violence in the community, I could have, but I didn't want to continue to be what happened to me and my family. Because not only did my brother lose his life, Eric and Jonathan lost their lives. Their children and their family lost the lives that they're going to have with them. 
you know. So it's just these uh, senseless crimes in the black community can be preventable. For me, it was like winning the championship of life that I felt good about who I was as a person, as a human being, as a man to, to, to face such horrific situation. And the man who was the trigger man, the shooter uh, of my younger brother, Lamar, that I felt that peace. I felt that I was doing the thing that I needed to do as a human being to be uh, an asset to my family, the community, and perhaps the world at large. Because I know we all have our faith or our religion. And, and, and what I've been learning and seeing is sometimes people become convenient in their religion or their faith when they're faced with accountability. But when they're faced with, with uh, unscrupulous times um, or hard times, they don't pour or pull from their faith or their religion. Yeah. They become angry, bitter, cold, uh, and, and want to continue to that which happened to them. And so I didn't want to be that. I want to be a light in darkness. I want to use what my brother did because that was, in a, that was a very intrepid act. You know, at 17 years of age, the sort of 12 gauge at your friend step in to protect her, you know? So I said, if he could do that, you know, that became an inspiration to me. If he could do that, what am I supposed to do with this, that he did that? And so I've become a poet. I'm going to stop you there because, because I, want, I want to ask right. this, this question. In, in college, you had no aspirations about poetry. And the first poem that you ever read was William Ernest Henley's Invictus. I have not cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of fate, my head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears, the looms but the shadow of the shade. Yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how punishment charged the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Which, which you had to had to, to memorize. You say it for for uh, a fraternity initiation. Yes. You, you you weren't a big fan of it. No, WC. No, uh, man. Grammar school, high school, college. I was not interested in literature, none whatsoever. Uh huh. Uh -huh. Being a poet nothing but when, when i went through the you know intake or pledge process for you know delta zeta chapter cap outside of incorporated we had to learn this poem invictus you know yeah. and then from that poem we had to learn don't quit and so that kind of was the, the the first couple poems that i read that i had to literally memorize and so from there that that was it i had to, i mean my degree is in business marketing i had no uh -huh. desire i wanted to get in quote unquote corporate America, you know, work at an ad agency, that was it. Yeah. But this situation happened and it just took me on another trajectory in my life, you know? So, because um, once I graduated from Central State in June of 92, I went to live in Cincinnati with a frat brother of mine, just trying to figure out some things and what was going on. And then one day I was just like, I was asking God, why don't I have this woman in my life I could be sharing this pain with and be going through this process with? 
And then my voice said, well, the person or the woman you should be sharing this with is your mother. And going through the process with her because she, you, she, you guys got to be in court every month until oh. they convict these guys or to, yeah. to the trial. Yeah. So that very moment in November 92, I told my frat brother, I packed my car. I quit the job that I was working. It was a retail job. And I packed my car and drove right to Chicago, drove to my mom's job. I was like, mom, I'm here. She's like, you didn't have to come back. I was like, mom, you are the woman I need to be sharing this with going through this process. So I moved back in with my mom and we went through the trial, the three and a half year trial together and dealing with Lamont's, you know, murder trial. It, that inspired my poetry. The prosecution attorney had to show me the photo. He said, crazy, this photo is going to come out in court. So I need to prepare you and your mother for this when it happens so there's no outburst or anything of that nature. So he gave me that photo. I took it home and I would just sit in my room and just look at it and just cry and look. And then it came to me, the poem, His Face. That shocking and horrific image you you reformed and molded into an expression through poetry. Yes, writing poetry allowed me to show my passion, yeah. uh, my rage in a positive sense means passion, desire, and enthusiasm. Rage is also an acronym for release anxiety to gain excellence. A friend and partner of mine created the acronym. He has a, a, an apparel line called Ragewear. And once I saw that, because I used to cut hair in a barbershop on the south side of Chicago at 79th and Artesian, it's called Celebrity Hair Design. My partner, Lamar Muriel Flowers, he would come in uh, the barbershop to get a haircut. And every time he came in, he had t-shirts or a hoodie or a hat that he was, you know, basically selling from his trunk. And I'm like, yeah, what's this face? What's this rage? And then he told me the acronym, told me the philosophy of rage. And I said, yo, this is me. And so I titled my book, Innocent Rage. Innocent being, Lamont was an innocent victim of a violent crime. And through poetry, I'm able to express my rage. And poetry is not, poetry is not violent. It can be controversial, can be political, can be agitating, could, you know, address the ills of the community and society. And so I entitled my book, Innocent Rage. I would say your brother wasn't an, an innocent victim. He became a martyr. For, um, for an for an important voice, is that is that fair or is that oversimplistic? No, that in, in the sense that I, I will agree with that. And it's been thirty one years. Yeah, more people know about Lamont today than he was when he was alive. Yeah, uh, because of my my message through through my poetry, because I want people to know that look, you know, I, I understand. I know my brother isn't coming back. He's deceased. Death is part. Yeah. Nonetheless, the spirit of him, who he is, and the act that he did lives through me, and I'm going to continue to share that message of hope, inspiration, empowerment, and one, believing in yourself, one, being able to sacrifice your own to help out mankind. And so through this creative literature genre, poetry, I am using to help out mankind, help out, you know, my city, my community, to inspire young Black men, young Black boys, because once- part of the solution. Yes, yes. Like, I never, I mean, I did want to play sports when I was younger. I played football, baseball, basketball, those things. But when this particular situation happened to me, I wanted to become the best orator that I possibly could become. So I became influenced by a Malcolm X, by a Nat Turner, by a Martin Luther King, you know, by a Frederick Douglass, you know, and then also some contemporary poets of, of, of today that I'm influenced and moved by that I, you know, aspire to be. You know, I want to create change. I want to be the change that I want to see. 
you know? So through poetry, despite how painful my story is, unfortunately, death in American death of, of black boys and men is, 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 is unfortunately the, 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 it become the norm and, and we become numb and desensitized to it. But um, I'm just trying to be a light in darkness and share my story in a way in which that will create the change I want to see, that I will empower, you know, the community and empower, you know, um, young black boys to say, yo, I could do something with my poetry. I could yeah. do something as a writer. We all are poets. We all have the capacity to write. We all have access to a pen and a pad. You might not have access to a paintbrush, you know, or a canvas, because that's, that's expensive. You know, you may not have, you know, access to, to get clay to, to sculpt something. Nonetheless, we all have access to a pen and a pad. And so we all have the capacity to write our feelings down and to journal and to let out those negative emotions. Heck, even let out love, you know? Love can make you do some crazy things. You saw what happened at the, you know, Oscars last year, you know? So love can make you do some crazy things. So if you don't know how to express even love and like, you know, it can make you do some crazy things as well. So we need to know how to, through poetry, write our feelings out to express ourselves creatively because it allows you to journal and allows you not to internalize that, 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 that pain or that hurt or the disappointment or your strong interest or passion for someone that you sit outside their house and you stalk them because you're so obsessed with them and they won't call you back and won't text you or won't FaceTime you. So, but we need to know how to creatively through the written and spoken word, share those feelings, let it out. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't have put the, the importance of of art as as a social catalyst any any more passionately man that was that was wonderful so i I wanted to do this and ask you because i think it i think the story here is an important part of of your journey as an artist and by the way people need to see you perform you you perform with uh with makeup on but you're 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 incredibly demonstrative and and brilliantly entertaining. You're you're so passionate uh, live. It's it blows me away. But you were born Robert Dunlop. Tell us where the name Quasi comes from and how important to your process of who you are now and how you became a poet through that. Well, um, my senior year of college at Central State University, I had about 45 interviews with different corporations. Okay. And though I went to a uh, black college, uh -huh. I still had two resumes. I had Robert, Robert L. Dunlap Jr. if I was interviewing with somebody black. I had Robert L. Dunlap if I was interviewing with someone white. Okay. Blacks tend to name their son Jr. Whites tend to name their son the second, the third, or the fourth. <laughs> and so I was always trying to have a psychological edge I would dress exactly like the person on the brochure. White shirt, button-up Oxford shirt, blue or yellow tie, blue blazer, khakis. Assimilate, but still be myself. You know, yeah. and then when I yeah. had an intern, I had an intern my, my, going into my senior year, came out corporation in uh, Novi, Michigan. They kept calling me Bob, WC, <laughs> and I just wasn't having Bob. I, I just, I was just like, my name is Rob or Robert. And then they would keep calling me Bob. And I was just like, uh, nope. And so my uh, after I graduated college, I met a fraternity brother who became my mentor, Quasi Ron Harris. Okay. And uh, may he rest in peace. He became my, my, my mentor. And I was telling him, I was like, I want people to know that I'm a black man before they meet me. And he nice. said, well, when were you born? 
He said, when were you born? He said, you know, most of us come, you know, though we were enslaved, we came from the Gold Coast uh, of Africa. And um, we would name our children on the day they were born, you know, the Asante tribe. And so he's like, um, you, I asked my mom when I was, the day I was born, she's like, you was born on a Sunday, 1969. He's like, well, you're Quasi. So your name is Quasi. It means child, child born on Sunday. When he read me that, I said, I'm Quasi. Nobody will ever call me Rob or Arrogant Rob or Bass again or whatever, because my nicknames or whatever. Now, I, I respond to that to those people who may call me that now. Uh-huh. But when I changed my name that day, people, when I was at the barbershop, people would say, yo, Rob, yo, Rob. And I wouldn't I, I wouldn't respond. Then when they said Quasi, I would respond. <laughs> and they was like, oh, this dude, he's serious about this name change. Uh-huh. You know, it's like Cassius Clay. When he changed his name, uh, Cassius Clay Muhammad Ali. Yeah, it's like, yo, call me Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Or don't call me at all. So call me Quasi, Quasi Goharo, or don't call me, you know, Robert. You know, so that's why I changed my name because I wanted to identify this way for me to reconnect with my ancestors. How, how does how does that name feed your poetry? Well, it, it's the definition of who I am. It yeah. says child on Sunday, natural born leader. The community looks to you to lead them through the movements of life. Pretty much, you agree, or you tell stories, and and you know the griot back in the day and the African time, it, he was the one who told the traditions and the stories of the tribe, and would pass those tradition on from generation to generation to generation. He was the griot, and so in essence, you know, being a poet is being the griot of the community. Yeah, yeah. So in your film, uh, in your short film, Quasi, you recite the poem his face about your brother and then you go on to say this the killing of black youth by 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 black youth would make the kkk proud the ku klux klan would like to take this time to salute and congratulate all you gangbangers for the slaughter of thousands of black people you're doing a marvelous job black man where are you today you continue to run away Run away to crime, theft, drugs, drug selling, violence, and the mental and physical rape of ourselves. You are killing what could be future black doctors, lawyers, and businessmen that we won't have to compete with. The excellent thing is, you're killing the youth. I too experienced the pain and the hurt. It seems like it would never go away, but understand, that was yesterday. With your help and commitment, we won't have to worry about you niggas and generations to come. Come forth, black man. Come forth, black man. Black man. I've always said that the proliferation of guns combined with the abandonment of communities amounts to a passive genocide. I'd love you to, to riff on on that for a moment. Yeah, because uh, metaphorically speaking, the, the KKK, you know, they lynched us. They killed us. They didn't yeah. want anything to do with black people my piece black man stop the kkk is a metaphor that black men black youth are more of a threat to ourselves than the kkk was 40 50 years ago yeah because we are inflicting and perpetuating this this violence in our community now i know the system is set up this way the system is set up because you know guns are illegal in the state of illinois are illegal in chicago but nonetheless our neighboring state indiana that guns are legal. People go over there, buy the guns, and come back over here. Or just the just the just the the, the, the black the trafficking of illegal guns. I mean, these guns. Don't there's a reason. Guns. There's a reason why why those gun stores 
in the south and 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 southwest suburbs and in indiana ring the city and and i've always said it, you know you could control that if we were circled by a moat but we're not uh, no we're not we're porous <laughs> we're a porous society where where there's there's really kind of little distinction uh, between it, between <laughs> a couple road signs between us and Gary, Indiana, and and Oak Lawn, and and all those other those other uh, municipalities. Yes, uh, that is, and, and unfortunately, we don't have good neighbors in that sense because we live in a capitalist society, and everybody's trying to you know make money, and and yeah. and guns and, and guns though are though illegal is you know a certain you know in, in the city of Chicago. The surrounding areas, I don't care about those those deaths or those murders or what have you. So they just, want, like, they just want the cash. Yeah, they just want the money. Yeah. So you come in here, buy the gun, you buy legally. What you do with it after that, it's on you. Like, I think it should just be a common law to ban assault weapons. You don't need an assault weapon if you live in an urban community. You only need no. assault weapon. That's those guns were made for war. I, I grew up around military weapons. I grew up in a cop family. Uh, I, I grew up as a hunter and and we had we had an AK-47 or Chinese SKS uh, for uh, for camping in Alaska because you could drag it through the mud and it would still shoot. It would make a lot of noise for an angry bear or an angry moose. Um, but but in a city, bullets go through walls and they travel long distances. They cut through through cars and and all that uh, with, you know, like butter. There is absolutely no reason to have those guns. And 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 I've always said, uh, and, and I've, I, I used to hunt with, with a rifle and a bow and arrow, uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, that hunting with a rifle is even, uh, is even a, 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 an easy way out. If you really want to make it a sport, give the animal a fighting chance. If you wing it with an arrow, it's gonna come after your ass. <laughs> so, yeah. So I don't think anybody wants to 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 to, to be an athlete and that type of sport. Because most of the time, as human beings, we are afraid. Then, of then don't do the sport. There's there's I, a duel on damn near every corner. I, I listen, listen, listen. I agree with you on that one, WC. But you know, yeah, yeah, people yeah. always want to take the, the 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 easy way out to get the gun, shoot the the animal, yeah, you know, yeah. for the game. And just keep it, keep it, keep it moving. And there's a, there's a statistic that uh, that I, I read a couple of years back, and, I, and I'm I'm sure it's true. It's probably even at, at a higher rate now with the proliferation of weapons. That 83 percent of all of the all the weapons recovered in crime uh, on on Chicago streets were purchased legally, and we've all heard of straw purchases, and um, so. Uh, we're we're kind of we're, we're preaching to the choir here, uh, but I, I I wanted I wanted to go here on January twenty fourth. You became an official nominee for the mayor's office in coordination with the Chicago Public Library and DCase, the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, and the Poetry Foundation inaugural Chicago Poet Laureate Program. Make the case why you, brother, need to be Chicago's poet laureate. I've been in this space for 30 years. Yeah. I've been pitching. I've been pitching myself and the mayor's office since Mayor Daly was in office 1997 mm-hmm. for me to be Chicago's poor laureate and to create the position. So for three decades, I've pitched myself to every mayor 
as recently as summer 2021, when I pitched myself to the Mayor Lightfoot's office mm-hmm. that I should be poet laureate, please, you know, create the position. Here's my my credentials. And I, so obviously, someone heard, someone heard that call, and and they they created the position. Now I'm not saying they created because I, you know, but I've been pitching myself. Uh, I um and I got in this space and had this desire to become poet laureate of the city of Chicago through the work that I was doing with the late. Miss Maggie Daly, uh, volunteering uh-huh. with her at Gallery Thirty Seven, and and she saw something to me in, back then that I didn't see in myself, because she would keep putting me in the rooms with people like poet laureate, the late Miss Gwendolyn Brooks, and introducing me to her. And from that introduction, uh-huh. I had the opportunity to share the stage with her at the University of Chicago wow. at a spoken word performance. And then when I'm done with my performance, Miss Gwendolyn Brooks said. Quasi, you are powerful. Stay at this because that was an unbelievable spoken word presentation. We are things of dry hour and the involuntary plan. Grayed in and gray. Dream makes a giddy sound. Not strong like rent. Feeding a wife. Satisfying a man. But could a dream send up through onion fumes its white and violet? Fight with fried potatoes and yesterday's garbage ripening in the hall. Flutter or sing an aria down these rooms. Even if we were willing to let it in, had time to warm it, keep it very clean, anticipate a message, let it begin. We wonder, but not well, not for a minute. Since number five is out of the bathroom now, we think of lukewarm water hope to get in it. After that performance, uh, Ms. Gwendolyn Brooks had a conversation with Ms. Maggie Daly. And then from that conversation, Ms. Maggie Daly invited me to be a part of the Poetry uh, Society of America uh, TV discussion on poetry in Chicago with the then poet laureate, Robert Pinsky. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, why is this woman keep, why is she helping me out? Why is she keep putting me in these rooms? And that gave me the desire and the belief that I could be Poet Laureate. Initially, a natural talent, to, man. Yeah, I was trying to be Poet Laureate of Illinois. Like, yeah, yeah. Miss Gwendolyn Brooks' words to me was so powerful and impactful that I wanted to be her. I wanted to replace her. That I literally pitched myself to the governor at the time to be Poet Laureate. And I had a state senator, a former state senator, Ken Duncan, wrote huh. one of my recommendation letters to the then Governor Blagojevich. But I knew he wasn't going to replace as such an icon. She had been serving. Uh, poet laureate of the state of Illinois since 1968. And so, but it's still that experience. Miss Maggie Daly put me in the room, introducing me to Miss Gwendolyn Brooks, putting me in the room with the poet laureate Robert Pisky. It made me believe that I could be them. I saw it, then I believed that I could I could be it. And so being in the room, I said, I, I want to go yeah. get my master's and study literature. And I, I was telling a friend at the University of Chicago or, or the University of Northwestern. Uh-huh. He was like, no, those are some great institutions, but you should study in Oxford. And I was like, yeah, right, Oxford. <laughs> and I was like, oh, snap. But again, being around people who see you in a way in which you may not see yourself, but if you want to be this, you want to go to the Mecca of what you want to be. Oxford, England is the Mecca of the English language. I wanted to, once he said that, I was like, okay, great. I went to Oxford Brooks University website. I saw what the requirements were. I got my three recommendation letter, filled out my application, sent the copy of my poetry book with that, and I got my acceptance letter to, to matriculate 
abroad in Oxford, England at Oxford Brooks University and a master's program for literature. Now I'll admit, WC, I failed. I failed my thesis. I failed the program by three points. And in England, Oxford, they don't do an ABC sliding grade scale. Right. They see the path. It's either pass or fail. Um, <laughs> on, on, on my thesis project, uh, WC, I uh-huh. I got a 47. I missed by three points. Wow. Uh, wow. But nonetheless, I had one of the professors there, Phil Whitehead. Uh, he was over the head of uh, the, the, he was a uh, head of performance art. And uh-huh. he would invite me to to speak in, 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 in London and several schools outside of Oxford. Uh-huh. And he was like, listen, crazy. I know you may have failed your thesis project or your thesis, but you've graduated and on a level of which your connection with the kids, first and second grade and kindergarten, he said, he said it was amazing. I've never seen someone connect with K through fifth grade, K first and second, like you did. So That's keep impressive. doing what you're doing. And actually, he wrote a quote for my children's, my children's book because I wrote my first children's book while studying abroad in Oxford, England. One, two, okay. three. I love, one, two, three. I love poetry, and it's basically to teach kids self-expression through poetry and teaching them self-love, because we all, through poetry, through writing, have the capacity, as I shared earlier, to write. And once you learn to write and you express yourself creatively by writing poetry or just journaling, you start to develop a self-love, a self-worth, a self-respect. You start to develop a voice. For yourself, I do a, a podcast for the Chicago Writers Association uh, as well, and there's a significant poetry contingent at the Chicago Writers Association. They even they even had some some great uh, at the the Let's Just Write conference uh, last year, and there's another one coming up in March that they they had they had some some great poetry interactive uh, speakers and, and classes. You know, I, I read probably two or three books a week, maybe, for, for the Chicago Writers Association, speaking with different authors and, and, and preparing. There was a there was an author, uh, a Thai author, uh, who wrote, uh, he's from Chicago, but he wrote a book in Chiang Mai based upon, it was a memoir where he's talking about his, um, his experiences going through a, a really tough divorce. Iris mm-hmm. is his name, and he's also he's also a poetry. Jerry's written a couple of books on poetry that brought a beautiful rhythm to to the prose to the to excuse me the to the nonfiction work. I've I've written poetry and and I feel that it's kind of a proving ground for for my books as well because it teaches me the rhythm of the word. And the emotion, the emotion of every single word, how, wh- where to, where to hit on certain words, right? So I, I think, and because I think it's such an important skill to learn for every writer, not just not just a fiction writer or a nonfiction writer or a book writer uh, or even even a, a poetry writer, but anyone who uh, who puts who puts words on a screen or on paper, the the rhythm and the pattern of those words are so deeply uh, important for them and for for the reader. I mean, you know, just it's just writing allows one to self-discover. 
Mm-hmm. It allows one to delve into their own emotional being. It's and self heal, brother. Yeah, I was just about to say that. It's the <laughs> only way one can self heal. You can go to every therapist. You could take all the medicine that 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 one may offer you. But if you don't, if you don't let out that 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 pain, that hurt, those emotions, yeah, it's going. You're going to internalize it, and you will become mentally unhealthy. Yeah. And I didn't want to become mentally unhappy. Even just dealing with the trauma of the murder itself is traumatizing. Now to become a double victim of that, I had to find a way out. I mean, yeah. it wasn't the external things that I was looking for that allowed me to heal or to find solace and peace in. It was writing poetry. It was writing. It was journaling. It was just letting it out. It was going and speaking about it at poetry readings in the city of Chicago. And so to, to go back to your, your question of why me, to be, listen, I've been living this in this space for 31 years. I am a poet. I became my poetry. Even though I've been gone out of Chicago for 16 years, now that I've been back and reconnecting with people, people have shown me so much love that though I've been gone, I haven't been forgotten. And people still, yo, Quasi, the poet from WGCI Radio. Oh, you uh-huh. came to my son graduation i met someone um last week at a, a speaking event he said quasi i remember you came to my, my 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 birthday party you had on your makeup and you you, you did a poem there he was 41 or four turn 47 he's 71 so he i mean so he's these personal encounters that i'm having and reconnecting with chicago that yeah. i'm still amazed that my impact on them was so so profound i was talking to someone I uh, did some work in, 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 in California, Kern County. A young man, he was 16 years of old, age. He was, he, was, he was Latino. At this particular time, this was in 2008, even though I was going, I was still in the community doing the work, even in California, LA. This kid on this particular day was going to commit suicide, WC. But he heard me speaking at his school, went home to his mother, told his mother that he was going to commit suicide, had to the suicide letter. He said, but I'm not going to do it, mom, because I met this poet today in my school who was so powerful and had such an impact on me. I want to live. I talked to the the, the, the administrator, Kevin King. He said, crazy. And the, 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 the kid, Sonny, he's doing well. Been in the Marines, has a family. And he said, I remember that. Because after he told me that my speech saved his life, I drove back up an hour away back to Bakersville to meet him at his job. He was working at a, at a bowling alley, pizza place in, in Bakersfield just to just put my arms around him and to say everything is going to be all right adversity is not forever but death is final you know and the kid is doing well as a young man today so and i hear these stories that i haven't known how my impact on the on people have been in the community until they come back to me and share with me so as poet laureate i will continue the love the passion and the work you know, I'm not afraid of the work. I am not afraid of getting in the areas that are highly affected by gun violence on the west and south side of Chicago. So the unique thing about me serving as poet laureate, you will get the creative and artistic side of me, but also I will address a social ill of gun violence in the city like no one else can. Yeah, we, we need that need that voice. I'm glad you mentioned WCGI. You You were there for a number of years, man. Yeah, I was on WGCI for six years. I introduced yeah. poetry to main, mainstream Chicago in which every poet that's successful in Chicago right now uh-huh. came 
through my platform. From Jay Ivey, who's currently nominated for a Grammy. Come on, Deaf Poetry. Get up, I get down. 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 We all here for a reason on a particular path. You don't need a curriculum to know that you're a part of the math. Cats think I'm delirious, but I'm so damn serious. That's why I expose my soul to the world, the globe. I'm trying to make it better for these little boys and girls. I'm not just another individual. My spirit is a part of this, that's why I get spiritual. But I get my hymns from him, so it's not me, it's he that's lyrical. I'm not a miracle, I'm a heaven-sent instrument. My rhythmic regiment navigates melodic notes to your soul and your mental. That's why I'm instrumental. Vibrations is what I'm into. Yeah, I need my loop by rent day, but that ain't what gives me the heart of Kunta Kente. I'm trying to give us us free like Sinke. I can't stop. That's why I'm hot. Determination, dedication, motivation. I'm talking to you, my many inspirations, why I say I can't let you or self down. If I were on the highest cliff, on the highest rift, and you slipped off the side and clinched on your life in my grip, I would never, ever let you down. And when these words are found, let it be known that God's penmanship has been signed with a language called love. That's why my breath is felt by the deaf, and why my words are heard and confined to the ears of the blind. I too dream in color and in rhyme, so I guess I'm one of a kind in a full house. Cause whenever I open my heart, my soul, or my mouth, a touch of God rain. So Malik Youssef has been nominated like 26 times for Grammy. He's won about yeah. 18 or 19 little Grammys. To I don't know if you've seen the commercial um with Flo. Uh, the, the actor, the black actor that's in that progressive commercial with Flo. His name is Paul Mabon. I okay. featured him on my spoke, spoken word segment. Poets like Emrail, Buddha Bless, A.V.R. Young, to, to, to Mario. So I am not afraid to share who I am and the platform and the assets I have with other artistic people because we need each other. Culture, art will change the culture. Uh, in Chicago and in every city, we, we need the artists to come forth. We need the artists to be highlighted. We need the artists to save our city. That that is that is probably the quote that I'm going to use to to title this piece. Uh, Art will save the culture um, because it's just such a great line. Um, you 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 also so you also performed with uh, Malik Yusuf, uh, who yes. I, I should say was a member of the Blackstone Rangers street gang. And he grew up with Common, by the way. Yes, I mean, but see, and that's the thing about your community or your environment may influence you, but it can't. It, 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 you you can't let it dictate to you who you finally going to be. Yep. You can grow up in that, but you can still evolve and yeah. use what you've learned for the greater good uh, of the community. And yeah, me and Malik grew up in spoken word. We used to go to spices together, lit X, uh, rituals, you know, bookstores you know, nightclubs, Cubby Bear. I mean, he was hosting Poetry Sets. I was hosting. Um, he created the platform, you know, Full Moon Poetry, you know. And so we would share these platforms with other poets and give other poets the opportunity to highlight their art. We wasn't intimidated by other artists. We we encouraged, we pushed them because that made us better as, as writers, you know, as performers, you know. Um, like if you want to be the best, you got to be around the best. Iron sharpens iron, you know. And for me, being Ch Chicago's inaugural poet laureate, it's the highest honor one can achieve in this particular space. Like yeah. if I was an athlete, if I wanted to play in the NBA, 
I mean, you know, I would seek to play in the NBA and the highest level of that is winning a championship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to be, if I was an attorney, I would want to be a partner or first chair. You know, if I was an actor, an actress, I would want to be lead in the movie or the film. <laughs> if I was a ballerina, I would want to be the lead. So I have, I have the same passion as anyone else that want to excel at the highest yeah. level of their craft. And so for me, it is that personal self-accomplishment and fulfillment that I have reached the highest level. Once I serve Chicago, my goal is to serve the state of Illinois. Once I serve the state of Illinois, my goal is to serve the United States of America as poet laureate. That's my vision. That's my dream for myself in this space of, of poetry because I know and I've learned how powerful my story and my message is and my impact and influence through poetry on the people. Kowaisa Garo wants to represent Chicago as its poet laureate. His website is com, and you can find him on Facebook at Kowaisi Garo. My brother's keeper, I'll, I'll post links to those in the, the notes below. His book of poetry is Innocent Rage. His children's book is One, Two, Three, I Love Poetry. We're going to link to all of that. I really look forward to, to meeting you and shaking your hand, man. Uh, no doubt. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely, you know, make that happen, Bill. And also your, your your viewers could follow me on Instagram. Follow my journey as I seek to become the inaugural Chicago Poet Laureate. Yeah, when will, when will you know? Instagram at 2KGPR underscore at 2KGPR underscore. Uh, the mayor will make the appointment on April 29th, 2023. Right now I'm going through the application process, okay. uh, which is due on February 28th. And then the interviews start in March. And then the selection committee will select three finalists that they will share uh, with the mayor. And then the mayor of the three would choose to select one of us. And I'm um, putting in the work that the mayor uh, appoints uh, Crazy Gaharo as Chicago's inaugural poet laureate. I mean, I anything we can do to put our, our thumb on the scale, anything we can yeah. do to put our thumb on the scale. I mean, if you know someone on the selection committee at the Chicago Public Library, the selection committee at the Poetry Foundation, or the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, yeah, I'll just put a good word in for Kwesi Gaharo. Okay. I'm going to serve you the city well. Nice, nice. Um, it, was, it was such a pleasure, man. Always, WC. You know, we've been talking for the past, I think, two or three years. I've been paying clients. <laughs> <laughs> so now, everything, uh, WC, that I've been doing for my clients, I am doing for myself as a brand strategist and as, 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 as a public relations executive. I am turning attention completely on my art form and really trying to, um, you know, make this thing, you know, a reality. You know, it's already reality because I'm putting in the work to make it such. So I thank you for sharing your platform with me. I oh, thank please. your viewers for, for tuning in. Again, follow me. Follow the journey. The marathon continues at 2KGPR underscore at 2KGPR underscore. You could also DM me for a book or you can cash at me to buy a book. $25. Cash app, the dollar sign, K-W-E-I-S-I-G-H-A-R-R-E-A-U. For the four, put your name and address in there and I will mail your book within seven to 10 business days. Thanks to Kowazi Gaharo. Links to Kowazi are in the notes below. That'll do it for this episode of Playtime. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. We end with the great Chicago artist. This is Common with Shy City. If you like this program, please hit the subscribe button for notifications on all future programs. This breaks over. I'm raw hustlers, get your bacon soda. Too many rape the culture. 
business and they faith over It's a war going on You can't fake being a soldier in the basement Listening to tapes are ultra magnetic To the fact I'm Messiah's black I turn the TV down, we can take it higher than that I wonder if these whack niggas realize they whack And they the reason that my people say they tired of rap Inspired by black Muslims and Christians Pushing compasses, dope And other traditions and other conditions of the city Like I do the police The beast is running rampant I'm in between seats Trying to have sex with Santric But a ghetto Trying to make a get out Stand up anthem You spit hot garbage Son of Sanford What you rapping for To get fame and get rich I slap a nigga like you And tell him Rick James Bitch with your Hollywood stories On porches We probably heard stories About who became rich And whatever like they hit We wanna hit the same switch You didn't know where to aim it You still remain bitch I'm forever putting Together, some of seven mothers, some daughters, and fathers, and sons. The name Khan has never been involved with run unless it's.